Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I bring on people that we think we can learn from. Whether they have achieved some of the goals that we have for ourselves, or they are an expert in a specific area, or they just have a cool story to share. We bring them on to learn a little bit more about them, how they think, and how they've done what they've done. Lewis, who do we have on this one? Hey Kyle, in this episode we bring on Steon Hacklove. Steon is someone I met on Twitter because we follow a lot of the same people and ended up having conversations on a lot of the same threads. I reached out to him because I really liked what he had to say about a lot of interesting topics and learned that he's a very interesting guy. He is the senior engineer and learning architect at the Minerva Project, which if you haven't heard of it, we'll get more into in the interview. Basically, it's a very innovative new online platform alternative to college where you travel and are with the same small cohort of students and have a very uh, new and upgraded approach to higher education. Stian is fluent in eight languages and he also has had a PhD in open collaborative online education, which is ultimately how he ended up in the role he's in now. In this interview, we go through his process traveling, learning those languages, working his way through school, and the goals of the Minerva projects. So with that, we are going to cut to the interview. Hey, Steon, thank you for coming on with us. Yeah, it's fun. It will be fun. Yeah, this is a pretty cool milestone for us because you're the first guest that's not from either of our personal networks. So it's really exciting for us. This is actually my first podcast interview, which is kind of funny because I have been on radio before and I've listened to a huge amount of podcasts, but uh, this is the first time I think that I'm a guest, so I'm excited. That's awesome. Uh, cool. Well, like I just said, since we didn't really have any much of an existing relationship before this, we we're hoping just to get some more general background on you know, where you're from because you're not from the United States. You speak all sorts of different languages, just a little bit of general background on yourself. Um, so I'm uh, Norwegian, uh, and uh, I grew up there. I was there till I was about 17, small town. And then I got the chance to go to this amazing um, school called United World College. Uh, basically, I was in this small town and you know, kind of bored in high school. And I saw a poster outside my guidance counselor's office um, about this college that had students from all around the world and who were kind of really interested in politics and, and, you know, just under, you know, global understanding and learning together. And to me, that was really appealing because I saw other people going on exchange years, but they would mostly just, you know, party for a year. Uh, and then you'd also be like the one, the, the Norwegian who is in the US or is in France or something. I didn't really want to be that. Uh, but this idea of being somewhere where everyone is new, everyone uh, comes from everywhere around the world. Um, and it was a really challenging curriculum. So I thought that was super exciting. And I ended up going to Italy for two years. I had an amazing time there that really opened my eyes in a, and probably set the stage in many ways for the rest of my life. Um, uh, and uh, it, one of the things it gave me an appreciation for was language, which I'd already been interested in. But um, and, and I spoke a few European languages, but this idea of trying to learn a really exotic language um, and not because it was exotic, but actually, well, actually, uh, to a certain extent, because I was interested in studying linguistics. And so I thought if I go in and I study linguistics and all I know is, you know, classical, like, oh, I know French, I know German, I know, you know, Norwegian, English, of course. And then you start trying to make some kind of generalization based on that. It's, it's very problematic. And so what are like the languages that are the most different from, uh, from English, but at the same time, I'm not going to go relearn some kind of native, 
you know, American tongue that nobody speaks. Uh, and so I'm also interested in kind of the languages that unlock just, you know, huge swaths of the world and civilizations and stuff. And so to me, um, at that time, I said, I want to learn Chinese, Arabic, and Russian before I'm 30. I uh, didn't succeed in that, but uh, <laughs> I, I did go for Chinese. So I, I ended up studying Chinese for a year and then taking the train to China and uh, teaching English there for a year uh, with the goal of really learning Chinese. And that happened to be in Wuhan, which has been <laughs> for a long time the city that nobody's heard, ever heard of. And now, sadly, it's, it's quite infamous. Yeah, it's, but, on, uh, yeah, I guess that's it's on the front page of the world news. Um, yeah. One thing that me and Lewis have discussed a lot in, in our conversations is just about how you know, we only know English, but we know that knowing different languages changes the way that you think. How have knowing, you know, nine languages changed the way that your, your brain works? Or can you even remember back that far? That's really tricky. Uh, I mean, there, there's, you know, I know you've probably come across the Sapir-Whorf uh, hypothesis that uh, people, you know, like where they're talking about language changing the way you think in a very direct manner. Uh, and of course, you see all these kind of uh, Eskimos have 300 ways of, of saying snow and, and these kind of or, you know, the higga is a word that only exists in Norwegian or Danish. So it must say something profound about that civilization and stuff. I think that's quite superficial. And many of those examples I just cited are kind of disprovable. Um, so I'm not sure about the linguistic features. Mm -hmm. I think to me much more, um, and I mean, my son would be a great case study of that because he is growing up now with a Chinese mother uh, in Switzerland. So he's now speaking Norwegian, French, Chinese, and some English. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we'll, and it's really fun to see him kind of switching back and forth and stuff. Um, but to me, I think it's, it's much more the travel and even the, I love reading. I love listening to podcasts, to audiobooks, watching movies and, you know, like just for China, which I've spent a lot of time in, which I really love. Like, I mean, there's all kinds of problematic issues there, of course, but in terms of just being there and talking to people and enjoying the, the life there, it, it's really amazing. And, and, and because I'm, I'm, I'm fairly, I'm still not, like I've read a bunch of books in Chinese, but it takes me a huge amount of time and I, I'm never really able to just get into it. Unfortunately, it's one of my big regrets, but talking, I'm pretty fluent. And like the amount of amazing conversations I've had with people, even like not necessarily philosophical ones, just, you know, sitting there in some little village and some guys just, you know, chatting away and sharing his way of life with you. Uh, and, and Chinese people are actually surprisingly open. Uh, which you might not believe if you you know just see them from Western media and stuff. But when you're there in person and if you speak their language, like they're very happy to share a lot of stuff. They're very very generous with their time. They're very curious. They don't meet a lot of foreigners and they, the people they meet they can't talk to. So you know those kind of conversations. But that's the same for Indonesia for uh, even you know going to Germany. And I often it's. So one thing is just the pure being able to communicate with someone, right? Like, am I able to ask for the directions to the train station or something? But another thing is the, the, the humor, the personality. And I remember I spent a summer in, in Beijing doing research uh, with this uh, Chinese Kazakh guy who was one of my best friends. And we would go out for kind of uh, dinner or drinks almost every night and, and talk away and had a really good you know, relationship. And then one of my friends came to Beijing and I was really excited for them to meet. 
course, my friend doesn't speak Chinese, so they're talking English. And they were able to communicate, but there was, but my friend, my Chinese friend suddenly seemed like some boring guy with like just very stilted and mm. like, and I'm like, but where's, so, so for, so for my, my visiting friend, he's like, oh yeah, this is some Chinese guy, like whatever, you know, it didn't leave an impression at all. And it was so completely different from the person I've, I'd met. And so that's, you know, even, even with, I think, automatic translation apps, which are getting better. And, mm -hmm. and even with like the whole world learning slowly English to some level, I think if you assume that that's going to be enough, you are, you're missing out on a, on a huge amount of, kind of texture and color. Yeah, you're missing out on the depth. And I think that's, that's a really inspiring uh, kind of story about the ways you've been able to experience different societies. Because, I mean, I've lived in two other countries and not really gotten proficient in the language beyond asking for directions and maybe not even up to that point very much. And I kind of noticed that, I mean, like I said, all these people, I never was able to connect with the locals in a more meaningful context. It was kind of always an acquaintance thing, never really a full befriending. And that's kind of because I traveled with like an American group in the American bubble. Uh, so what are some tips you'd have for learning a language? I'm sure uh, this is another theory you might say you has total truth or no truth that once you've gotten your third, fourth, fifth, six, seven, eight come pretty easily, uh, relatively. And that also depends if they're from the same family. Uh, cause if it's your seventh European versus, you know, learning something totally different, but your advice for language learning to make a long question short. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's a few things and I've thought a lot about this. Um, when it comes to multiple languages, um, you, you know, there's two things. One is definitely just kind of spillover. Uh, and there, I, I think, yes, you know, if, if you speak Italian, then for Spanish is going to be a lot easier, although you're going to keep messing them up, but at least you'll be able to kind of read and understand them much, much faster. And uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, learning Chinese, there's not going to be a lot of spillover, but I think breaking the barrier in terms of learning your first foreign language to a high level of proficiency, um, I think that gives you both... Uh, a better understanding of language from a structural perspective. Uh, because if you only speak your native language, like you, like all these grammar terms, they're kind of not, they, you maybe learned them for a test, but they, they never had any meaning for you because you know uh, kind of how to speak the language just intuitively. And suddenly you start learning German and what's a subject and an object and the indirect, like suddenly those things are like crucial and, and, you know, decoding that. And then I think the, the, the uh, self-confidence that comes from knowing and I think that's maybe one important thing for Norway, for example, where every single person speaks good English. Most people don't learn anything else beyond, like most people study a bit of French and German. They don't really get proficient, but at least they know that, yes, of course, I can learn another language well. Okay. And I was actually blown away. I had, when I was in China, I had a really good friend from the U.S. Um, who had, didn't know really any Chinese before he arrived and didn't know any other languages other than maybe a little bit of Spanish mm -hmm. and was still able to learn a massive amount while he was there. And to me, that was kind of mind blowing because I came there, you know, having learned English at a young age and then having studied some other languages. And here's someone who's 20 and Chinese is his first foreign language. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and still he's able to kind of not be overwhelmed and, and make progress. And his, it was funny, his um, measure of progress, because that's one, one thing that's really tricky when you're learning language, right? At first it's like, you know, I'm learning one word today, two words tomorrow, four words, <laughs> you're doubling every single day. But pretty quickly you get to the level where you're, it's really hard to kind of really see the progress. So his measure was he would go to the local noodle bar and again, 
Chinese being very curious about foreigners, um, they would ask him lots of questions. And, you know, and, but they would be very impatient because they're not really used to people who don't speak a language well, right? They're not going to slow down, repeat themselves. It's like he speaks Chinese or not kind of binary question. So they would say like, ah, where are you from? You know, and he's like, Mei Guo, China, America. They're like, oh, okay, okay. And how old are you? And he's like, you know, 20 years. Okay, okay. And so they're like, yes, he speaks Chinese. He speaks Chinese. Great, great. And then they say, you know, like, what job does your mother do or something? And he's like, uh, could you repeat that? And they're like, oh my God, he doesn't speak any Chinese. Okay, whatever. I'm not even going to bother my time. Like, this is over, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, come on, give me a chance. But the point is for him, the measure was like, how far can I go? He's how like, many okay, questions can I answer? Questions, right? And then he, he like studies for a month. He comes back. Okay, I made it to ten questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also great. Like, so I mean, that's I guess part of the answer too is just uh, communicating with people and not being shy. Yeah, is a really key key thing. I had. Uh, I mean, when I came to China, I spoke worse. And I was teaching English there in university and I spoke much worse Chinese than most of my students English, mm-hmm. but I would just have to use it all the time outside of class to get fed, to get my clothes washed, to get anything done. This was also in like 2000, 2001. This yeah, is way, exactly. way before kind of instantaneous digital translation. Oh yeah. Oh way yeah. Before. I mean, this was before digital dictionaries. Like if you want to like try looking up a word in a Chinese dictionary, have you ever thought about how you would do that in a manual dictionary? <laughs> in real time. Or, yeah. Well, no, not even in real time, but like literally, like here's a character, here's a book. You don't know this character. Look it up. Where do you even start, right? Like there is a way, obviously, <laughs> but it's not, it's not like, oh, A, B, C, D. No, yeah, it's, it's like way more convoluted. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, that, what was I going to say? Yeah, so anyway, within a few months, I spoke better Chinese than they spoke English, or at least I was more comfortable because I kept using it. And, and my best example of this was um, I was in Russia at this Russian course and uh, we had this, this girl from Manchester who was just really exuberant, like just really, you know, fun. And, and, and we were all super, super crappy at Russian, but she would like pick up a few words and she would just use them. So she would, and Russians, you know, they, they personally, well, off work, they can be super nice, but like at, on work, they can be very off-putting. And she would go up to the like the, the security guard in a shopping mall who's standing there all strict, and she would be like, "Hey, how many brothers do you have?" <laughs> <laughs> totally, it's just like the only friends. sentence she knew how to ask. Yeah, but they would, you know, she would use it, and then she got much better. So using it, but then I mean, for the other part, to me, and I, I, I think. And I have a lot of polyglot friends who agree to agree with me. And it's possible that, you know, that we're not representative of the general population. I don't know. But most of the core, the traditional you know, textbooks that you find, right, they'll be like, here's a, a text in Hindi. And it introduces a ton of new vocabulary, a ton of new grammar. And so you're kind of working your way through it. Like maybe it's a one page, but you're spending so much time trying to keep like, okay, what was that word? And what's that, even that letter? Because you're just at the beginning. And, and if you put them together, what's the grammar? And what this is, and what's this story even about? And then like, you might spend a day or two working on that. And at the end, and then there's like, you know, workbook questions and stuff. At the end, you're like, yeah, okay, I made it through the story. And then you go to the next chapter and there's more words and there's more grammar. And if I designed the textbook, you would make your way to through that one page. And then there would be a 10 page story with no new vocabulary. Right. Just like, just because both because it would let you really reinforce uh, what you've learned 
uh, it would also just let you get that feeling of reading fluently, even though it's a super limited vocabulary, but pretty quickly you could write like s simple things like that. Uh, and, and I haven't really found anyone who tried that out, but that's a really interesting thing. idea. You should test that out with Minerva. We're not doing a lot of, uh, interestingly, we're not doing a lot of, um, language learning at Minerva. Really? Um, I mean, students do a lot of uh, individual, I think. Mm -hmm. um, Just both kind of outside of class, living their lives in those wherever they are for a couple of a semester or whatever. Let's, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, let's get, uh, let's take a step back before we get into Minerva because that's going to be a long <laughs> conversation. But um, sure. can you tell us a little bit about your education? We know you got your PhD and you've done some research. Uh, did you focus on linguistics or did you, you have a different focus in? No, I, I never really, so I went, so I studied uh, in Sweden for a year and I went um, to China and then I came back. I did a year of, uh, in Norway, we have military service, but if you say you're a pacifist, you get to do kind of civilian service. I did that. I was in a receptionist in a peace research institute, which was uh, pretty appropriate uh, uh, for a year. And then I went to Canada and I started on this uh, undergrad in international development studies. Because I was, you know, I'd been traveling, I'd been in China, I'd been going all around the world, um, taking the train to China, seeing a lot of stuff. And I was like, you know, why are some countries poor and some countries rich? And like, right. what's... Um, You've seen some wow. gross differences between different countries and people's quality of life and those kind of things. Yeah, but, even, but also like stuff that's not... <laughs> The challenges your kind of traditional, uh, very naive conceptions of rich and poor and third world and stuff, because you see amazing stuff going on in China, uh, of course, uh, and and you see, yeah, just like, <laughs> so A, like, why is the world like how it is? And B, what can we do about it? Uh, whether that's as individuals, as NGOs, as, as governments. Uh, I was also really interested in politics. I'm like, well, what is, you know, what is a good political stance to have that's actually that would lead to some improvement and of course it's a very complex thing to study so you end up in our program uh, studying everything from soil science because agriculture is really important to uh, sociology history uh you know i, I took some courses on public health which are now fairly <laughs> really important yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it you know it broadened my horizons in a huge amount of ways it was also because it was kind of a very small program that took advantage of a lot of big programs uh, in terms of putting together the, the course catalog, mm -hmm. it, it felt also quite disjointed because I would take a course on soil science. Most of the people there were people who were like, you know, geology majors or something. And then you're going into a course on sociology where a lot of people are going to just do a master in, or a bachelor in sociology. And you kind of had to sew it all together yourself. Um, but then we went, uh, part of the attraction for me, uh, was that we get to go for a year, uh, to a developing country to work for an NGO there. And I thought at this time I, I was a bit older than, well, I was the same age as my, my friends, but they had many of them had finished university, whereas I'd been doing other stuff. And I saw them kind of finishing university with a degree in sociology or something it was super interesting and then not being quite sure what the next step was and I thought this thing will give me still a, a really good academic degree but it'll give me like a full year work experience in an NGO and, and so I really like that combination. And so where did up, you go? I ended up going to Indonesia 
which was actually, I, I really want to go to Africa because mm-hmm. I felt like I've been to Asia. I like it, but I could easily go back by myself. Whereas mm-hmm. Africa, I hadn't spent a lot of time in. I wouldn't really know where to start. And so, but the problem was actually, uh, and this was something we studied a lot, was this concept of tied aid, where countries oftentimes, when they give money, they'll be very specific about what you can use that money on. Mm-hmm. And so Dear if Mark. you get money, sorry? I said it's earmarked. It's earmarked for it's a specific. Earmarked, exactly. Uh, and so... You know, like, and and that's part of the reason why they give the money. Of course, I mean, the U.S. USAID is is um, the farming organizations are big lobbyists for them to increase the giving because then they buy up um, farm products and stuff like that. But the problem was, I was in the region in Canada, and most of the organizations getting support from the Canadian aid organization, they wouldn't be allowed to have a Norwegian intern, <laughs> and. Uh, so I was able to go to Indonesia because it was with Care International, which gets money from all around the world. And they were able to host me. But it turned out to be a super interesting year. Very challenging, but, but very interesting. Cool. So is that what you did your PhD in or is this before the PhD? This, this was bachelor still. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I'm slow. Um, <laughs> Even in school, long time. Lots of, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff along the way, clearly. So... Yeah, so I was there for a year and I ended up, uh, we were supposed to do an honors thesis on um, on a topic that we found there. And I didn't really, so I worked for this huge NGO, right? Uh, and this was a few years after the big tsunami. And so they had, they had really like a, a massive operation. Um, but what I actually ended up writing on was, was really interesting was this concept of uh, community libraries that um, had kind of sprung up like... Um, some metaphor, I know. <laughs> uh, there was a huge amount of these initiatives, but it was all in digital, like it was not driven by any foreign NGOs and there had been almost no reporting on it. Like people hadn't even heard about it. And yet when you asked like people in Indonesia, like, so if two young guys are unemployed in an Indonesian village, they'll start a village library. And people are like, yeah. And like, that doesn't happen anywhere else. Like, <laughs> they just kind of assume does- that's what, that's what people do, but Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, like, that's, that's not what people do uh, anywhere I've ever heard of. Other, <laughs> right. I've never heard of that. And so it's just super interesting to kind of dig deep into, and because I, by then I, I spoke the language pretty well. So is literacy not- like a really big deal there or like people just really into reading books or that's just, how, how does that come to be? So <sighs> I'll give you the short version. Um, you know, Indonesia was, it was under the Dutch for 400 years. Uh, it's really funny to think, you know, the, the Holland is a very small country. Um, Indonesia is a very, very large country. Um, that wasn't really a country before. It was just like 16,000 islands or something like that mm-hmm. uh, with different languages and different cultures. And really the, the Dutch people made it into one state. And I mean, also like Malaysia and Singapore, there's no reason why they should be, I mean, it was all kind of just one area of islands with different cultures. But, but and so, so Holland had two colonies, I think, Suriname, uh, which is a tiny place in, in uh, South America or, or Middle America and, uh, and uh, Indonesia. And at that time, you know, the schools were in Dutch. Uh, then eventually you had some like basic schooling in Indonesian that I was like looked down upon. The libraries, you were not allowed to go to the library if you weren't, uh, if you didn't have a high school degree, which was really rare. And of course, all the books were in Dutch. And so it was seen as something very foreign and, and exclusionary. And then... After then you had a brief period of, of Japanese rule, and then you had about 50 years of the dictatorship, 
until I think 1998, uh, fairly recently that they became a democracy. And until then, like all of the culture, all of the artists, everything had been really suppressed. And so there was this kind of huge wave to, uh, yeah, to, to both literacy, but, but also really just culture, art, you know, discussion, creation, sharing. There's all this is kind of bottled up. But the, the cool thing is they didn't call them libraries because library, as I said, it had this kind of connotation of something that's very not for people like me. And even like, today, well, I don't know today, this was 10 years ago, but in Jakarta had like 15 million people and they had seven official libraries, but they were like on the seventh floor of a government compound, you know, like mm-hmm. in the back of like, so normal people would never want to go there. So instead they called them reading gardens and they, you know, they totally rebranded them. And, mm-hmm. you know, instead they would be like in a village or someone just like put the habit in the garden, lots of like colorful books and, and kids would come and there would be like artists teaching them theater and, and stuff. And so it's like, and it just somehow spread uh, crazily. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting, and especially the fact that it was just for them, it was so obvious and nobody outside has really heard about it. But so on the one hand, I was kind of telling the world this really cool example. On the other hand, I was trying to give Indonesians themselves a little bit of a chance to reflect on what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as, as part of that. And have them acknowledge that it's actually extremely interesting and unique what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. And And just one more thing about language, because I've always been interested in kind of language equity right this this idea that we we take for granted that everything valuable is in english and and it's kind of up to others if they want to access it so for me obviously i got and especially when you're studying international development studies and and you're going to to be an intern abroad i mean there's all kinds of questions about ethics and equity and and like you know privilege and stuff that but you know one basic thing is like obviously so many people there helped me out massively with asking my, answering my questions, with guiding me with, you know, all that stuff. And so the least I could do, I felt was to make my research available to them in Indonesian. Mm-hmm. And so after I've written my thesis, I, I paid someone to translate the whole thing to Indonesian. And luckily I read Indonesian well enough, like go through and kind of feel comfortable. Like I wouldn't want to do the translation, but I was able to, to look through it and, 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 and fix some things. And uh, the cool thing is that, and of course it's, it's open access and stuff. And so, you know, like almost nobody, I mean, it's out there in English. Like, you know, I actually got two journal articles out of it too, which was cool for an undergrad, but I don't think it's caused a stir in the international library movement to put it like that. On the other hand, it's been cited like 20, 30 times in Indonesian journals and on blog posts and news organizations. So on the one hand, it's, I think I provided something of value uh, by giving them this kind of outside view. And on the other hand, it's also a way of keeping myself honest because my supervisor at the University of Toronto, you know, they know the methodology, they know how to write well, but they, they didn't have any, like, I could make up all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. or I could just be completely wrong myself. And so writing in that, and I, that's something similar I did for my master's when I wrote about um, China. I also made sure it, it was, uh, what I wrote was available in Chinese. Because yeah. that's that really, a, I was going to say, so that's that really good. You go first, Kyle. <laughs> I was gonna say that, that's really good validation for you. Like that's the ultimate validation is uh, the people that you wanted to provide value for them citing it in their own journals and their own um, their own works and stuff. That's really really cool. Mm-hmm. I think that should almost that almost makes me want to think that should be some sort of standard for like an academic to do is put it in whether maybe that burden shouldn't be on the student or not to just make it available in the language of the people 
most directly affected by it or most directly studied because other than like that's how it can really be verified if that's what it takes. I have, I have a blog post still on my site from, I don't know, 2005 or six or something back when I, well, I'm still am, but I was really interested in open access and this you know idea of, of journal articles being hidden behind paywalls and not accessible to the public. And then on the other hand, there's this issue of research ethics and you have to go through a lot of loops when you want to do research on, on people, which is the way it should be. But there's almost nothing in those ethics um, requirements about what you do once the research is done. And so in my blog post, I said, you know, should there be a fair trade stamp for research? Uh, it's kind of just more a joke, but to think about like, well, yeah, if you do research on uh, people in other countries, then A, it should be open access. That's a, kind of the base <laughs> requirement. B, it should be translated uh, to a language that they understand. Uh, and C, if they are not people who read academic uh, materials, then it should probably also be in a version that, you know, so if you're researching children, like you're not going to let them read your PhD thesis, but maybe you can make like, I don't know, don't have to make a children's book. Maybe you make a little video or, you know, explain it to them. Um, I, I feel like that. Yeah. I still think today that that should be a requirement. And I think, you know, universities should have a fund just like they have a fund for open access publication, which many of them do. And that's great. They should have a fund for translation if, you know, whenever that's appropriate. Reworking the academic materials into kind of a more useful resource for everyone. Yeah. You shouldn't have to so, have a PhD to read it. Not at all. And I mean, that that's so I, it's something I've been thinking and doing a lot about also uh, through my life is, is thinking about uh, access to um, scholarly communications and how we publish. And so, uh, you know, for my, for my bachelor thesis, I, I did this translation project, which is kind of my first thing. For my master's, um, which was uh, about open courses in Chinese universities, and this was when I was doing a master's in education, comparative education. Um, and this was a topic that was, you know, open educational resources at this time was really like I was in the, there was a lot of people blogging about it. Uh, there was uh, a lot of people interested. Uh, and I knew that those people, you know, these were academics and stuff. So and they spoke English, uh, at least once outside of China, but they wouldn't necessarily sit down and read 150 page thesis. I know how many PDFs I download, but then they <laughs> unfortunately stay in my downloads directory. And so I tried a few different things. So the one thing I did is I made a, like a Kindle ebook. Uh, just converted it, but then you can put it on your e-reader because academic PDFs, they kind of suck in terms of usability. But also I serialized it on my blog. Uh, and so I would uh, just kind of take, you know, skip a lot of the, the stuff that you need in your PhD and master thesis, but it's not so interesting. And, and then take off the other chunks and then just post one a day for like, I don't know, two months. And then I would tweet them up. And I got, I got like a you know, the nice thing there is, of A, you can, you know, that's back when people were using Google Reader and they were actually kind of like newsletters today. They would actually get it regularly. So a lot, of, I would meet people in conferences who were like, oh, I, I read your, you know, that part of your thesis is really interesting, which felt very cool. But also now you're making each little chunk into its own kind of citable uh, thing that has its own unique URL. And so if someone's on Twitter and they're talking, you know, in my literature review, I talked about open courses in Japan and, that, you know, if I'm sending you a 150-page PDF, that's kind of silly. But if you're saying something about open course in Japan, I can send you the link to that blog post. You know, that that's something that then can be retweeted. It can be commented upon. And so, 
Um, I mean, I still think we need a much better infrastructure for that. Maybe Rome and, and these kind of things could point the way, but that was like an early experiment in, in trying to make stuff more, more Making accessible. each component of the 100-page thing its own usable piece. Yeah. Kind of changing with the unit size almost. Breaking it down, yeah. making it more searchable too. Yeah, definitely more searchable, more accessible. Uh, so I guess now that's a good jump to the PhD, which is kind of on the same line of thought, right? Open education, uh, or is it a little different? Yeah, yeah. So kind of still I, democratizing knowledge and these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. So so the ideas are, are similar, but the approaches are kind of different. And the thing is, when I so I, I was doing my bachelor, and I was really confused about where I was going to go. And two things that I had never thought about before. Um, one was public health, and the other one was education. And both of those, really, when I was young and naive, I thought, you know education is only for teachers and health is only for doctors and I don't want to cut people open. I don't want to see bloods. So I'm not going to go into health. Like I had no attraction to me and I don't want to become a teacher. And so I'm not going to study education. And then, I mean, I guess that's what a good you know, bachelor's degree does is kind of open your, your vision a bit. And so I understood that health, and we see this today, of course, public health, uh, you know, uh, and, and all kinds of other aspects of health, they're extremely complex and, and require all kinds of disciplines. And so I almost went into that direction because I'm an amazing teacher. Um, but also education. We have at the University of Toronto, there's a 12-story building that's just a faculty of education. Uh, and it's one of the biggest in the world, actually. But they have everything from you know early childhood psychology to the standard K through 12 pedagogy to higher education to workplace learning to uh, labor unions. Uh, I mean, just everything. And it turned out to be a, a, because I'm interested in, as you said, democrat, democratizing access to knowledge, but also just learning development. I mean, these are really huge themes that let you look at almost anything. Uh, and, and so I went. But my, my challenge was I was really interested in how adults learn. And this was a bit scratching my own itch because I, I felt like I, I don't understand the development process of a seven-year-old. Mm-hmm. Like I just, there's so much going on there that it's, it's really confusing. Whereas I know that myself, and I think part of this was coming to university a bit older because I'd been traveling around and, and doing the civilian service and stuff. I was able to both learn, but also have a little bit of a, a meta relationship where I was looking at, well, why are we sitting here in a lecture hall with 300 people and why are we doing multiple choice tests and who came, who thought that was a good idea and did they actually test whether that works or not? And so I had all these questions. Um, and, and the problem with was that even though this edu- school of education was one of the biggest in the world, you had to choose between studying higher education and then you're in the theory and policy studies or you study pedagogy, the science of teaching and learning, then you're focusing on primary school to high school. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I want to study teaching in university or for people beyond university. And, and so the way I ended up doing it was I did my master's in the theory and policy studies field. And so I got to look into uh, this open education resources in China. And that was, by the way, another example of this massive project in a country. China at that point had created, so this was before mass- massive open online courses. In 2003, MIT began uh, with some open courseware. Yeah, from money from Hewlett Foundation and others to basically release. Most of it was actually PDFs and and PowerPoints and stuff. But what people remember is like the 
5% of courses actually had full videos and, and they would be literally lecture recordings of two hours, you know, but that was still kind of revolutionary at the time because especially because it was kind of Harvard and MIT and Yale and stuff and people around the world were like, what is, you know, what's actually going on inside <laughs> there. And, and because it was a creative commons license, people were able to subtitle these things. They were able to kind of chunk them up and deep link to them in a way that you can't do it all with MOOCs today. Um, and, uh, in China, they had this movement where they had created uh, something like 800 open courses um, across you know, hundreds of universities, massive government funding. And there were actually more than a thousand academic articles written about this program in Chinese and not a single one in English. So in this case, they did. And, and, and also, again, like they were kind of aware that this was something unique. But if you ask them, why is China doing this? Why did they start this program at this time? With you know, it's bigger than any other country in the world. Like in the U.S., the government never supported uh, supported these programs at all, right? And they would say, "Well, you know." And, they, and it's funny because I talked to a lot of people. They would all point me to like, "This is what the Ministry of Education says." Like they say these three sentences, and I'm like, "But why did they decide to say those three sentences at that, that time?" And mm -hmm. That question hadn't really crossed people's, but that's what they said. That's why we're doing it. Like, well, <laughs> it's really interesting. So again, I kind of ended up um, doing almost more investigative journalism than, than research, uh, just talking to a lot of people, reading a lot of articles, and of course, also bringing in the theory. And uh, it's, it's quite an interesting story. I don't need to go into depth now. But, uh, but as I was doing that, on the side, I met this group of kind of international interesting people um, actually started at a Creative Commons summit. So Creative Commons, you know, this is this open license. And they, uh, I don't think they do it anymore, but they used to have these conferences. And they, they were really cool because they would actually bring together like artists who are releasing music under open license, but also like programmers doing open source, educators doing open educational resources, and like businesses who were interested in like what's an open source business model. And, and, and so there was like people who wouldn't necessarily meet otherwise. And, and it was, and that's also where uh, I learned the value of like unconferences because, so I was in my undergrad and I was reading a lot of blogs and, and following people on Twitter that were kind of my intellectual heroes, but nobody knew who I was outside of my, you know, my friend group. Like I wasn't, I didn't have any presence. I wasn't part of a global community and I really wanted to somehow get into that community. And so I went to this co conference with my own money in Europe and I'm walking around, there's thousands of people and they're all like super smart and super well-connected. And I didn't quite know how, where to start, right? And, and there, they had different tracks in this conference. So there was the main track. And here you had like people like Cory Doctorov, uh, Lawrence Lessig, Joey Ito, like these just giants that I've been you know, really looking up to um, on stage. And I'm like, man, I want to see them live. And on the other hand, you had the education track, which was much smaller and was kind of run like a non-conference. And so I went to the, to the main conference because I really want to see these people. But what I realized is that after I sat there for an hour, you know, in this big lecture hall, and then we all went for lunch and I'm like, okay, I could have just watched that on video. It's a great talk. Like I really enjoy watching these people, but I can just watch it on video. I still don't know anyone. I'm still going to eat my lunch by myself. Instead, I went to the education track with 30 people sitting in a circle and the moderator goes around and says, why are you here? And I said, I'm here because I want to figure out what the university of the future looks like. Because I don't think that we need big campuses and we don't need libraries necessarily because we have everything online. We don't need a lot of the stuff that we, we have. 
but there might be some crucial things that we do need. And what are those? And how can we reproduce those and actually give access to a lot more people? And she said, that's great. And she keeps going around and there's two other people who say, I'm really interested in what he said. And so at the end, the moderator says, hey, the three of you, here's another room. Come back, here's some markers and some paper. Come back in two hours. And that, you know, to me, that really changed my life <laughs> in a way because what we ended up doing was sketching out what would become the peer-to-peer -peer university, mm -hmm. um, which took a, you know, a little bit longer to, to gel. But, like, I got so much more out of, of that being physically, I mean, in these days, more than ever, you realize how, how kind of a, a valuable thing kind of physical co-presence is, right? Mm -hmm. And how often that is completely wasted by people checking their email and, and listening to a lecture. Uh, and instead of, of giving people the space and time to, to create something together. Um, so, so what was Peer-to-Peer -peer University? So what we came up with at that time was saying, okay, we have the materials, like we have all these videos from MIT, but we also have all these open, open source textbooks. We have uh, Wikipedia, we have like documentaries on YouTube, we have open access journal articles, like the stuff is out there. I mean, this was already 10 years ago. Now, of course, there's even more stuff, but still. Um, but so what's lacking? Well, one thing is curation, right? Like if I say, hey, I want to learn about blockchain or I want to learn about quantum theory like where would, if I just put quantum theory in Google and I click on the first link like I, I'll learn something but it's not necessarily the most effective it's not the approach. best mm -hmm. no and I don't know what's good or bad I don't know what, what are the prerequisites I might you know and the second thing is is kind of a social community um, for you know for two main reasons one is uh, I if I've read something I want to discuss it with someone and so it's hard if I go to my friend and say, hey, can you quickly read this 20-page paper because I want to discuss it with you. Uh, having a cohort of people that have already done that is actually hugely uh, valuable. And then you can also have this kind of um, peer pressure, social pressure, motivation. Accountability. Like deadlines, right? Like we talk so much about these kind of things. Uh, and, and so that was, and then later we, we had ideas about kind of alternatives to accreditation, digital badges and stuff. That kind of came later. Those were the main components and we were really inspired by the Wikipedia model. Like, can we build something that's free, that scales, that's really built on volunteerism and, and networks and not, um, and now one of the tensions that we had, which I think you see the same thing with the massive open online courses is this idea of wanting to serve the unserved, right? To say, Oh, there's all these people who don't have access to good education, whether they're in the wrong country or they can't afford it or they, you know, whatever. And the problem is that these kind of approaches aren't necessarily what's needed, right? Like there might be, there might be this one genius in Ghana who's like living in a little village and is like building robots out of scrap metal. And if he could only get access to, you know, like a Coursera, or, or Wikipedia or whatever, like he would actually just like take off. And like those people exist, I've seen them, right? But they're not the, the rule. And the average person who drops out of high school or, uh, you know, is just struggling in general with access, um, you know, A, they have other issues like, you know, time and money, because even if education is free, doesn't mean that you, you have 
the kind of space to sit there the whole day to focus on it. And B, like if, if you have issues around self-efficacy and study skills and all of those things, like giving you a bunch of online self-study resources is not going to be the best way. And so actually peer-to-peer -peer university now, which I'm not working with anymore, but they're kind of um, trying to experiment with uh, working with libraries to provide uh, an on-site place with a physical community uh, that's connected with all these curated resources and this international network. So I think that's really interesting. But, but for the people who, in a way, are privileged, right? Like the, the, the people who are taking P2P courses, the people who are taking MOOCs, they're like, overwhelmingly, they already have, a, have at least one degree. They're fully employed. They, and some of them, a lot of them had masters and PhDs. So they're not underserved. But on the other hand, like, still, like, there's this massive potential for professional development that's not being met. And, and for that population, like, we were doing really interesting stuff. Um, and, and we were doing, for me, the most interesting thing was really, on the one hand, you have this global community of people who are super diverse. Most of them are not researching education or anything. Um, and who have all kinds of interesting ideas about pedagogy and, and how we learn together. And on the other hand, because we had these boundary object, if you want to use a fancy term, which was the actual school, like we're building a school together and we're designing courses and some of them we've designed, we've seen how that went and you've taken some of them and we're building a platform, a like a, a software platform. We're talking about policies. And I think that made the discussions that we had much more real because if you just take 50 people and you say, Hey, let's do an unconference about the future of education. Like, you'll probably generate a bunch of ideas, but it'll be really scattered. And here, because we had this thing that kept us together, and yet we were able to really dream and go pretty deep in different kinds of theories and stuff, it was one of the most kind of productive intellectual communities that I've ever been part of. And I think I was really lucky as a, as a senior undergrad to, to, to and, and then later as a master's student, kind of stumble into, into this. And so that kind of led me to... The, the PhD. Uh, I was doing this on the side during my master's, and I said, "Well, I, my master's, I asked questions about this open educational resource program in China from a policy perspective. Like, why did the Ministry of Education start this? What was the motivation of the professors? Uh, all of this stuff. But I never actually asked whether these resources were useful." Because I wasn't looking at it from a pedagogy, and I didn't have the background, the, the tools to be able to ask those questions, but those were highly interesting questions. And at the same time, we're building up peer-to-peer -peer university, and I'm like, I want to understand how people can learn together at scale in online environments. And so I went into a PhD on computer-supported collaborative learning, basically exactly what I just said. <laughs> um, and... And, 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 I, and it was an incredibly interesting and stimulating time, but it was also frustrating because it turns out that community is really focused on primary school to K through 12 again. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Professional development for people that already have a degree or... Even, high, even universities are not... Um, it's, it's coming more now, um, but it was really hard to to connect the things I really wanted to do with the things that would let you publish in the best journals and conferences and stuff like that, which is of course what your PhD supervisor will guide you towards. And, uh, and there's lots of things that I feel like I could have done differently or better or more effectively during my PhD. But on the other hand, like the PhD sometimes can be a, a place where you really explore a lot of different things. And so 
And one of the things I spent a lot of time exploring was a note-taking system. Okay. Um, is this evergreen notes or is this something else? No, I mean, uh, so basically the, I was really overwhelmed by the amount of literature I was expected to read. And, and also the, the, the time frame, because you're reading hundreds and hundreds of papers that you might need to cite in three years when you're actually writing your thesis. And you need to be able to cite it extremely precisely because you, know, you need to know which page you got that idea from. Um, and it's and there's so many different theories and models and they're all related and uh, it was extremely complex and there were no good tools not even close to any good tools for for this and add to that the whole just the logistics of dealing with pdfs and reference management which is you know nowadays at least you can put stuff on instapaper and you have a single url and that's all you need to find the source and for academia somehow it's way more complex uh it's it's quite, and I could go on for quite a long time about how silly it is, but what I ended up doing was um, creating this kind of very hacked together duct tapey MacGyver system using, so there was a, a bibliographical reference manager that was open source, but it was scriptable through Apple script. And there was a PDF reader that was open source and let you annotate and highlights and stuff like that. And there was a DocuWiki which was uh, kind of an early wiki that had one nice property, which is that all the pages were actually stored as text files on your drive. So mm -hmm. it was really easy to like have a script that just generated new text files and they would just be pages or manipulate those uh, things. And so I, I made this crazy workflow with Apple script and Ruby and keyboard ma maestro. And, you know, it was really uh, a Rube Goldberg machine, but what it let me do was to read a PDF, take highlights, export it to the wiki with, every paragraph linking back to the page in the PDF and the metadata. And then I could kind of take higher level notes and stuff. And of course it was much, much more complex than anything that, um, for example, Rome enables you to do. But at that time there was nothing else like it. And still today, actually in terms of the actual logistics of, of academic note-taking, there isn't anything like it, which is kind of insane. Uh, so, you know, I spent a lot of time exploring that uh, field and that's a little bit of the reason why, I think immediately kind of clicked when I saw Rome uh, months ago. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But uh, my final project, so I also, also so during my PhD, the, the massive open online courses kind of came on the stage. So this is and what, so that, like 2000s when? Yeah, I think the first MOOCs were 2012, 13. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, there was, um, you know, there, have you heard about X MOOCs and C MOOCs? No. So this is kind of like the geeky, geeky um, distinction because initially, so the, so the, the initial genealogy was there was a guy called David Wiley, where well, he's still he's still around actually, um, and he was at Utah State University I think at that time uh, researching open educational resources. A really really cool guy. And so he says, I'm teaching these courses on open educational resources. Like maybe what would it look like to make my course open? Because up until then, people have been like posting PDFs, posting videos, but like that's not a course. So he's like, well, I have this graduate course on open education. Like, how can I make that open? And instead of doing something super fancy, he said, well, you know, you guys all set up your own blog. And this was back when RSS feeds were still a thing. So, you know, just give me the, the link to your feed and I'll add it to my page. And here's a bunch of readings. 
And they were like hardcore readings. They were like, the first week was a 150-page United Nations report. And two questions. Should uh, education be a, a global human right? And should it also be an obligation? Or is it enough that it's a right? Those are two questions. And anyone could sign up. There were no prerequisites. didn't cost anything. And uh, this was my last year of my undergrad. So I signed up. And at first, I didn't know. So I started reading other people's blog posts. And I had, and, you know, I wrote, and it's still on my blog today that the thing I wrote back then was I wrote a ton. And then people would comment and, and stuff. And it was, for me, this was the last year of my undergrad. And I spent the whole Sunday every day for a semester on this course without any credit because it was just such an incredibly interesting group of people discussing these topics. And so I was super impressed by this course, but it was kind of a one-off. Like, it did this one time. A lot of people thought it was really cool. And then it's like, okay, well, what's next? What's next? And these guys in Canada, George Siemens and Stephen Downs, they had been developing a theory of connectivism, which is kind of like a learning theory for the digital age. Uh, and there was a bunch of people excited about that. So they said, hey, you know, let's do a course about connectivism and let's kind of be inspired by David Wiley's method. And, uh, but we're going to make it bigger. Well, I don't think they thought they were going to make it bigger. It, it became much bigger. So they had, you know, by the while they had maybe 30, 40 people. And they had about 2,000 people who signed up. And, you know, now we have 150,000 people on Coursera, but this was really massive back then, right? And uh, so they were like, well, we can't read, nobody can read 2,000 blog posts every week. That's not, that doesn't scale. So we need to have kind of tribes. And, and it was really self-organizing. So the cool thing was like, there was a bunch of teachers in Spain who would all go in Second Life back when that was a thing. And they would like, you know, there was people in Toronto who go for coffee. And then you had this kind of method of having the best ideas bubble up to the top. And, and George Siemens might, you know, do a weekly newsletter and say, here's some really cool stuff that happened, but don't expect that you can, you're not gonna be able to follow everything. That's fine, it's an ecosystem, it's a network. And this just created a massive amount of energy. And I think it was a, a guy from Prince Edward Island called Dave Cormier who coined Massive Open Online Course. He said, this is a Massive Open Online Course. So he was the first guy who used the word MOOC. And then I think just a year after you had uh, you know, the, the AI and, and machine learning courses from Stanford. And of course, they, and, you know, a New York Times article, 150,000 people signed up. And that became a MOOC. But they are incredibly different models. And so... Uh, in the literature, you distinguish between uh, CMOOCs, which are connectivist MOOCs, which are these kind of like really bottom-up networks. And, and there have been a, a good number of them after that and a bunch of research on them. And then XMOOCs, which are the edX, the Coursera, the Udacity, the kind of corporate massive model. Uh, but anyway, so, so this created a lot of excitement and a lot of pushback as well. But it, it created a bit of an opening in the scholarly community to look more at, at collaborative learning in universities, interestingly. And so for my PhD thesis, what we ended up doing was um, designing a MOOC for teachers on how to use technology. And we, wanted, we put it on edX, but we wanted it to be really participatory. Because the, the topic that we, you know, the thing we wanted to convey was how technology enables you to use new pedagogical approaches that are more collaborative. So you can use blogging, you can use wikis, you can have students take pictures at home and share them. And so you can't, well, we felt that you can't really teach that by just showing people videos. You, you need to let them experience it. And that was a real challenge because edX is, doesn't have a lot of functionality for collaboration. And the functionality it does have is very limited. So even it does have peer review, but it only works on one specific model of peer review. 
And, and we had, so we spent a lot of time actually building custom technology as plugins to Adex. And, and the, the thing we wanted to kind of do was twofold. On the one hand, what can we do with, and we had about 2,000 active learners. We had about 8,000 people who signed up, but like 2,000 who really participated, right? So, and these were mostly teachers. Uh, and some people worked in, in, in universities or museums. So these are not people who come in as blank slates, right? They have massive amounts of experiences, ideas. And so on the one hand, what can you do with 2,000 teachers that you can't do or can't do as well with 20? What is, the, what is enabled by scale? And on the other hand, how can you still do with 2,000 teachers the kind of really intense, really rich learning that can happen in small groups and small classrooms? Uh, and, and it was really interesting to kind of explore those two in parallel and then think about both what kind of pedagogical scripts and, and also what kind of, you know, computer interfaces, algorithms um, that, that you could use. And then we kind of built that and ran the course. And, and to me, that was both, you know, it was a big step forward in my PhD thesis, but it was also kind of a, it was when I lost some of my inferiority complex about being a software developer because I've been playing around with technology for all of my life, but I, I always thought, you know, I'm not a real developer. And those people, those ninjas in San Francisco, they're far, <laughs> far above me and stuff. And I still thought so to some extent, but like having built something that was in use by 2000 people and where you see them, you know, like there's a, there's a physics teacher in Cambodia and a physics teacher in Australia who's like, creating a lesson plan together and they're like, Hey, what's your Skype? Let's keep in touch after this. I'm going to teach this lesson plan in my class. Let me know how it goes. You know, that kind of feeling uh, that I enabled that to some extent. With the software you built. With the software, with, with the, with the pedagogical design, mm -hmm. with the community, right? These are, these all go together, but exactly. And so I said, well, you know, I, yes, I love, I, I like research. I like new ideas, but I want to build stuff that gets used. Right? Like that, seeing that human connection being made to me was more meaningful than like getting a paper published in a journal. Even though like I built, like I, I built on so much of the research that was out there. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that, but I'm saying for my, myself, that was both like, oh, I can actually build stuff that has a real use in the world. And, and that's like something that I really want to do. So what did that lead into? So, uh, Basically, I, I, I talk about these pedagogical designs, and we, in in um, in computer-supported collaborative learning, we talk a lot about scripts, and uh, because the idea is, the basic idea is people can learn certain things better collaboratively, and there's a ton of research about why that is, what kind of things, in what situations learning collaboratively is better, and so on. Um, however, in most cases, just asking two people to sit down and work together on a, on a something like happens a lot in schools is not very productive. Right. And again, there's lots of research about why that might be because you're satisfying. So someone says, I think it might be a, and you're like, okay, fine, let's, let's do a, someone might be dominating. Someone might be freeloading someone, uh, you know, you all kinds of different reasons. So basically the whole field of CSCL is how can we kind of nudge people? How can we create the environment where they can be really productive collaboration towards learning? And that can happen through, the physical design or the, the design of the interface. There's a ton of really interesting research, which is very relevant also to Rome, for example. Um, uh, how do people interact using different um, interfaces? So if we, right now we're taking notes in a Google Doc, how would that be different from if we were taking notes in a concept map 
or in an Excel spreadsheet where we listed the hypotheses on the left and the, and the, and the evidence uh, for, you know, on, on the top or all kinds of different things. It could be uh, saying, okay, you talk for three minutes and I listen and then I respond to you, right? It could be saying, well, you're going to be the critical one. You're going to be the supportive one. It could be giving out roles. It could be, you're going to first read this article. I'm going to read this other article. And then we come in and we have to combine our knowledge. And there's all kinds of methods. And what we're trying to do is see what, what that, how does that work scaled up? And also more asynchronously, because in the MOOC, people aren't, aren't there at the same time. And uh, the problem, you know, if you're in a class with 20 people, a physical classroom, you can do almost anything with some sticky notes and some, some pens and paper, right? You can ask people to, a good teacher or um, workshop facilitator can have people uh, go in groups and you're going to talk to that person. Then you go over there and here's a gallery walk and you're sharing this thing and they're walking around, they kind of... The moment you move that online, now you have a 20-person Zoom meeting, right? You're, it's useless. But also the moment you move it up in scale, now you have even 60 people, which isn't like a big college class. Now you have 600 people. I mean, you can't do anything at all. And the things that you want, so you're really limited by software, right? Like you cannot do it without software. And the problem is that most of the software that exists, even today, this is like quite a few years after my PhD thesis already, you know, we see where well, we have Zoom, right? It's better than not having Zoom, but it's still pretty limited. Uh, we have edX, we have, I mean, some, some different like quiz app, like Kahoot. And, you know, it's just really compared to the kind of stuff that we want to be able to do. Like we have Google Docs, that's great. But now you have 100 students. You want to put them in groups of four. You want to give each of them a Google Doc. And at the end, you want to, you know, send them out for peer review. That's really, really a simple use case. But if I asked you to set that up for class tomorrow, it'd take a couple hours probably. Right. And if you had a thousand students, you couldn't even do it. So we did it because we hand coded everything and, and we hand coded it like to the level of like, this is next week function next week. You know, it was not a generic framework. It was really just like, uh, and that doesn't scale. And so people would read my thesis with all these like design diagrams and stuff. And they might say, well, this is a really cool approach. We want to do that. We have, uh, you know, at EPFL where I'm in Switzerland, where I was uh, working later, they were doing MOOCs for uh, sanitation workers in Africa and uh, in, in the Francophone Africa, because I'm in a fr uh, French speaking country. And they said, this is the same thing. We have these people, they're sanitation workers. They have so much experience. You know, we want them to share their experience. We want them to crowdsource solutions. We want, you know, but I was like, well, you can't because there's no software that supports it and you'll have to hire an engineer for three, three months. So then I came across this guy in um, Switzerland called Pierre Dillenberg, uh, well-known in, in the CSEL community. And he'd written a book about a concept called orchestration graphs, which was a way of kind of bringing a formal notation to collaborative learning. So a way of describing the thing I just said about Google Docs and 100 students and peer review and stuff in a kind of almost like mathematical formal way, like a flow diagram of dependencies and stuff like that. And he was thinking of using it mainly for kind of learning analytics to be able to connect back uh, data about how you learn during different steps of the process to the actual learning design. But I had the idea of what if we use this as the authoring interface for a tool where a teacher could come in and, and it's almost like a no-code. That's like the, the, the fancy word these days, I guess, like a no-code tool or, you know, kind of like Yahoo Pipes, if you ever saw that. Those like a drag-and-drop builder. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, but that had enough flexibility in it that you could do really rich things. And then you can instantiate a, a virtual learning environment for students where they could then do all these things. 
And, and so that seemed like a really, really exciting challenge. And, and here I, I went from an education lab to, to computer science lab focused on education, but where, you know, people had maybe the, the right ideas to be able to build something like that and think about like, well, what's the, what's the abstractions? What's the kind of grammar that, that can let you fit these pieces together and in a way that it will actually run, right? Because one thing is drawing lines on a piece of paper. Another thing is like having something that is executable by the, by the computer. Mm-hmm. And, and so we spent about four years working on that, uh, three years uh, and, a, and a bit working on that in Switzerland. I mean, if you think about it, we're, we've, we're 20 years plus into like the internet and people making websites and there's still people that are, aren't satisfied with what exists for drag and drop website builders, which is just like the fundamental base unit of the internet. So trying to create a drag and drop uh, builder for something as complicated as learning, which like you said, you can do a million and a half different ways and all have their own merits, whether it's facilitating a virtual debate or like the, the gallery walk or small groups that bubble up into big groups. And you add in the challenge of it being asynchronous and global and not requiring a substantial amount of information to be able to build plus the curriculum back. And so creating that's, I mean, that's, that's a challenge. That's, there's a lot to consider in making a tool that satisfies people from a drag and drop approach. So that's, there are a lot of moving pieces. That's a, that. a big undertaking. <laughs> yeah. And, and if, in fact, though, what we were building was, was focused on synchronous meetings. Okay. Um, because we felt that there is, in, well, in terms of the workflow, there isn't necessarily something perfect for asynchronous, but there has been a massive amount of cool tools developed for asynchronous stuff. And there's also a little bit more scope for, you know, Wizard of Oz approaches where you have someone just sitting behind the scenes and copying URLs and stuff like that for asynchronous, right? But synchronous, you're in a class for an hour, everyone has their laptop, and you just don't have any scope at all to, to do things manually. Like, it has to has to work. And uh, and so, so this... But, anything synchronous, you know, adds this complexity. There's very little tools out there, very few tools that let you do collaborative writing outside of Google Docs or Etherpad, right? Those are the two, but they work in a very specific way. And so thanks, and you know, none of this could have been possible even a few years ago, but because of the amazing libraries that we have available now, open source libraries like React, but also like ShareDB, which is uh, the main library we were using for, for kind of real-time collaboration, we were able to build these kind of abstractions on top of that where anyone could develop a, a kind of a real-time uh, collaborative widget or activity. Uh, and we, so we had you know, generic things like collaborative writing, collaborative spreadsheet, collaborative uh, uh, you know, concept mapping. But even like we had a, a master course where students would build these and you know, some of them built like a, a game theory activity where you would be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, uh, uh, fold. I'm going to tell on my partner. And the then the partner dilemma. says something, and then it shows you the results. So people were able to build these really quickly, and uh, and we had this nice API where they were feeding data into into a um, into a dashboard. So the student, so the teacher could monitor in real time uh, what the different groups were doing, and they could reuse the data. So you could take the data from that game session and put it into a chat where you could discuss about the different. Um, different approaches. And, and we even started putting in some more uh, kind of machine learning stuff where you could have, let's say you have a bunch of students and you say, what's the biggest um, challenge in terms of sustainability right now? And some people talk about energy, you know, the power is too cheap. And someone talks about, uh, we need more solar cells. And then you have two students, one talks about, we need to bike more. And the other one talks about car sharing. And so using things like word to vec you can actually classify these 
at uh, you know in a, in a kind of n-dimensional space and say that these two are much more similar than these two, even though none of the words overlap, like mm. none of the literal words overlap. And now you can, as a teacher, then this was our dream, uh, say, hey, I want to group the people, the two people who have the really similar approaches first, uh, or I'm gonna, now I'm going to mix them with the people who have two really different approaches, right? And so for the teacher, just like how we use um, voice recognition on our iPhones without most people really don't understand how that works, but they're able to use it. Like, can we take some of this kind of cutting edge stuff and, and package it in a way that the teacher could just use it without necessarily knowing anything about word to back? I mean, this, these were kind of the ideas that we had. And, and that's how you get the bottom up system that you're talking about is combining these people in ways that, you know, you don't see if you just put it all into one huge PDF and have something searching for words. It's, it's like a deeper level of connection that you're looking for. I think that, throughout this like we can obviously see that your passions um your passions for pedagogy 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 and um education and teaching people and i think that it all plays really well into what you're doing now with minerva um could you tell us a little bit about minerva and what it is because i don't think that our audience is going to be very familiar with it yeah so i had heard about Minerva back in 2013, maybe, because one of the things that frustrated me when I was studying comparative higher education, we were, you know, we were studying the education systems in Europe and Asia. And it felt to me that even these, the world experts on higher education, they were so kind of set in their ways of thinking about possible models. Right. It, it tended to be like, well, you know, we could add one credit hour of this. Maybe we should have some clickers in our large lectures or maybe we could tweak this thing or, you know, there's I'm like, well, there might be completely, completely different ways of doing this. And in fact, there are some countries who do it completely differently. But also like there must be just such an incredible opportunity space that isn't really being explored. And peer to peer university was one attempt at exploring that. But of course, you know, we have no money. And we, like our limitation was like, we want something that can scale to everyone in the world for free. That's, that's one approach. Minerva had a very different approach. They said, we're going to build an elite university, right? Like we want to compete with Harvard and uh, Stanford for the quality of our undergraduate education. We're going to be very selective. We're going to take the best students, but we really want to try to figure out how we choose really the best students, not just people who have money and, and get coaching and stuff. But we're going to have we're going to have tuition. We want to lim- lower the tuition as much as possible. But you know, so now suddenly you have money, so you can actually hire people and, and all that stuff. You have really highly motivated students. You want to get accreditation. So those things are different from peer-to-peer university, and they, they give you it's a very different opportunity space. But then everything else is up for grabs. They don't have a legacy. They don't have a campus. They don't have. Um, you know, they want to really rethink everything and they want to base it on how we know people learn. And of course, that's a very contentious and, and um, you know, there's a lot of different points of view there, but there are a few things that people tend to agree upon. And one of them is that lectures are not very effective. Right? Like I, I challenge you to find the, the education researcher who says, no, it turns out that lectures is like one of the best ways of learning for students. Right. Uh, and so but we keep doing it. So what would it look like if we designed a university around what we think is the most effective way for students to learn? And what they ended up, so I've been following, so you know, what they ended up doing was uh, saying, we're going to have this university, it's going to be four years, unaccredited undergrad. Um, all of the classes will be online. 
And right away, when people hear that, they're like, oh, okay, well, it's like Phoenix University or it's like the Open University or whatever. It's like, no, no, the classes are going to be seminars of maximum 18 students and one professor in a live video conferencing. And that we're going to, we think none of the existing solutions are really good for that. So we're going to build our own. And we're going to just spend all of our time and energy to design it around the kind of learning, the kind of interactions that we want to promote. And we think that we can get to a point where people would actually prefer uh, having the class online to being in the classroom. Be because, you know, imagine like I had a lot of uh, tutorials. So I never, I don't think I had almost any class in undergrad with 18 students and one professor, but I had tutorials with 18 students and one TA. Um, and everyone's looking, everyone's seated in a small room. They're looking on the, to the TA, right? And then you, and then TA says, anyone want to say something? And you look around and stuff like that. In a Minerva class, every single student's face is on the screen the whole time. So we're all looking each other in the eyes the whole time. So already that is changing something, right? And we, um, we have, you know, our, our approach to education is fully active learning. So there's a lot of universities that are experimenting with active learning, right? So they might do flipped classroom, like you do, you watch a video at home and then you, you kind of do the homework in class. You do, you collaborate with your peers or uh, you have clickers, you have breakouts. And for us, we want to do fully active learning. So we want to take it one step further where you come to class very well, well prepared. Um, there's a lot of pre-class work and we do tests uh, usually at the beginning of each class uh, quizzes that are graded to make sure that students come prepared. Uh, and then the teacher is never allowed to talk for more than four minutes at a time Whoa. because they're not lecturing. They're not teaching you. They're facilitating learning, right? And that actually goes to the kind of learning that we want to see because it's easy to focus on just the classroom. And I'll, I'll come back to that, right? But, you know, you have a lecture, you have a small seminar, you can, you can tweak it a lot. And most of the work I've been doing actually in research was really focusing on, on that one and a half hour that people are meeting because that's where you can go and do an experiment. You can talk to a professor and say, hey, you know, can I try this out in your class? Um, as a researcher trying to redesign a four-year university curriculum is impossible. So you might not even try. Even designing, redesigning a 12-week course is, is really difficult. So you go at for the smallest granularity. But at Minerva, they didn't have that limitation. So, what, so they said, you know, what do we want the leaders of the future to know or to be able to do? Because we're, as we see right now, we're in, but even before the current crisis, right, we're in very dire straits. Like the world is facing incredible amounts of complexity and, and, and challenges, and we need people who can meet those, whether they're in business, in politics, in science, in culture, whatever. So, okay, what do we want them to know? Well, you know, just one example, critical thinking. We want our students to be good at critical thinking. Every university is going to say that. Every university is going to say that they train people in critical thinking. But go to the university president of your university and say, how do you train people in critical thinking? And how do you know whether it works or not? How would we get him on the I, show? We'll ask him. Yes, mm. I would like to know the <laughs> answer. I've heard, for example, the president of New York University be asked that in a public setting and not giving a very convincing answer. Um, because it's... I mean, partially also because the way universities are organized where professors largely, you know, are responsible for their own teaching. There's very little coordination going on and stuff like that. So uh, the first thing you have to do is to say, well, what is critical thinking? It's, it's a very diffuse 
topic. Uh, and, and maybe it's not even one thing. Maybe it's a bunch of things. So at Minerva, we broke it down. And, you know, people might break it down differently. Uh, that's totally fine. But at least, like, try to make effort. So we did a bunch of research in the literature. And we said, you know, uh, if, if you were deciding between going to Stanford and going to Minerva, you know, that, that's the situation that calls for critical thinking, right? But one of the things you might want to do is to look at all the information on the Minerva webpage and say, like, is this credible? Like they're claiming, you know, that it's all these things. Like, can I really believe that? Like, uh, you might say, well, going to Stanford costs more, but over a period of 20 years, am I really going to get a, a higher return on investment than going to Stanford? Right? Like, there's a lot of different questions that you can ask yourself, and they require very different kind of thinking. They're all kind of part of critical thinking. And so we broke it down like that, and you can get down to the level where you can actually have a rubric, where you can say, can you assess the, a, a claim, the logical structure of a claim? Right? So if I say, because the coronavirus came from China, we should block immigration from all Chinese, right? There's two ways you can, uh, you can, you can, well, there's lots of ways, but two ways you could say it's like, well, first of all, do we know that the coronavirus came from China? I mean, in this case, probably yes, but then, you know, that's one way of attacking that. Another way is saying like, wait a minute, is that logical inference you made actually valid? And if it's not valid, then I don't even need to look into that claim that you made, right? So again, you can measure whether people can uh, disassemble a logical claim. You can measure whether they can um, look up a source validity, and, and there's a lot of other things. So what we said is, sorry, I'm going into a lot of detail just to paint a picture, but the idea is we have, we came up with a list of 88 foundational concepts, and they're all kind of hierarchical. So there's uh, four categories. One of them is critical thinking. There's effective communication. There's a few others, things that we think every single person in the world needs. And then we said, okay, we, we want to make sure that every single student not only learns these, but is able to use them in real life. And the way we do that is we, the first year of Minerva is the same for everyone. So if you go into study philosophy or computer science or biology, the first year you have no choice. It's four courses. They're very multidisciplinary. So, I mean, I, and I get to take some of these classes when we're testing, testing out new pedagogy and new functionality. It's really fun. So for example, one class, we talk about logical statements. So we start by look at reading some English literature and identifying logical statements. Then we look at the way we do logical notation in math. And, and we, we look at some, and then we look at philosophy and how they've been talking about it. And then we go into Jupyter notebook and oh, we like, you know, use and or statements. And so very certain, like, so from a computer science perspective, that's actually really fast, interesting right? how you kind of actually being able to connect all those levels, consider all the different perspectives of formally studied logic. Like yeah, discrete math. It's, it's Python. It's kind really of just cool. And and because so, for example, for us, you know, every single student in our university learns Jupiter and and Python. And of course, the people who go into computer science are going to go way, way, way deeper. But the point is that that's basic literacy. And because we have those four courses that are obligatory for everyone, and they go in parallel, we can know that everyone has the same. So we can go and have, yeah, you're doing a literature class on, on Shakespeare. You know, let's, let's write some quite quick scripts that do some word uh, correlation and let's use that for our digital, digital humanities. But anyway, so, so they learn these skills in the first year and we, and we have a hashtag for each of them uh, because we want the students to really, uh, that it's a part of a shared intellectual language among the students in the faculty. So, you know, they see the definition, they have some examples, then we give them a bunch of opportunities to practice it, to apply it. And then 
over the second, third, and fourth year, they go into more and more depth. First, they go into you know computer science or, or physics. Then they go into um, concentration courses. Then we have reading courses where uh, students uh, come up with the topics they want to learn about, and then three to five students find the faculty member and they basically write their own curriculum. And I'm going to actually uh, supervise such a course in the fall. I'm really looking forward to that. That's awesome. Uh, and then you do a capstone project for the last year where you find an external advisor. And it's, you know, it could be an honors thesis kind of thing where you're doing like some, some kind of research thing, but it could also be like starting a business or writing a play or something significant, new and relevant to your degree, right? You're writing a huge computer program that does machine recognition. I mean, you know, so it's, it's kind of going from everyone does the same to people doing hugely different things. And from you having no agency, to be honest, the first year, I mean, of course, the things you do, but still like over the gold program, to you choosing exactly what you want to do because you have now seen what's, what's available. And, but throughout this process, you're expected to apply these uh, foundational concepts and you'll be graded on them because uh, you know, all of the classes are in this video um, platform that we built ourselves and they're all recorded. And once the class is over, and, and they're, as I said, very highly active. So one of the things that we built in is talk time. So let's you know, imagine the teacher has a bar of all the students on top, and then we have multiple layouts. And this is part of a timeline that's predefined. So the teacher can say, I want four students on the screen that's going to debate with each other. I want two students in a Google Doc. I want a Jupyter Notebook. I, you know, so they switch it around all the time. And they call on students. And if they press Control, all the student faces light up in a different color depending on who has not spoken. Oh, wow. And so we make sure that every single student gets a chance to talk all the time. We, call, we cold call all the time, right? So we will say, so Kyle, what would Plato say about what Peter just introduced from Augustine's perspective, right? Like you have, if you're not paying attention, <laughs> it's very awkward and you learn very quickly to just because we know it's hard to pay attention in a, glo- in a digital environment, right? But we, mm-hmm. ma- we make people pay attention. Um, and so it's recorded after the class, the teacher will go in and they will look through the recording and they will say, well, here's what, you know, the 30 seconds that Kyle was speaking. I'm, I'm not just going to say it's good or not good. I'm going to assign a specific foundational concept. And I'm going to say, you, you applied the concept of multiple agent analysis. Here's the rubric for multiple agent, if I forgot it. So I'm going to choose a three and I'm going to write you comment. And that then goes into your dashboards. When you log in to our, you know, it's kind of like our blackboard or canvas or whatever, you see, here's all of my foundational concepts. I'm going to click on this one. And here I see every time I've been evaluated on multiple agent analysis or uh, identifying audience for, for writing, right? Or for, across all the four years, across all courses, whether it is in a video lecture or whether it's when you upload a PDF, they'll actually go in and highlight and kind of annotate and say this paragraph. And again, they'll, they'll choose the specific foundational concept and they will write a comment. And so we're tracking because what we're aiming for is transfer. We're aiming wow. for you to be able to learn a concept and, and, and being able to apply to widely different contexts. Unprompted, first prompted, right? So we're scaffolding this. First, we're prompting you. So, well, you know, if you were going to use found a, uh, multiple agent analysis, how would you look at homelessness in San Francisco? And, and, you, and hopefully you're able to do that, right? But then in the third year, we're in the sociology class. We're talking about, you know, the, the separation between India and Pakistan. We expect you to come up with certain things, or maybe you surprise us. And you're like, ooh, I'm going to use a complex dynamic system analysis of this. And we're like, ooh, I was not expecting that. I'm going to give you a five for that because that was a really clever use of that concept. Um, 
And it's, it's something that I've, I've never seen anyone else even attempt to do. And uh, it, it is, is so, so powerful. And it's also something that as a researcher, as I said, I could, I could never have, have tried to do this, this kind of approach, right? And for the transfer, by the way, for Minerva schools, right, which is our university, it's not just in class because actually what this video platform allows us to do as well, you know, the students, they all live in San Francisco the first year. 80% from outside the U.S., uh, most elective university in the U.S., um, 23,000 applicants for 180, around 180 seats per year. So they all live in San Francisco the first year, and the classes are online, but, you know, the classes are three, four hours a day or even less, and sometimes more. And so they go out in the city, and they're doing internships, they're doing uh, they're doing uh, uh, civic partnerships with NGOs, they, they go to events, they organize events. And then after a year they all fly to South Korea as a cohort. And they're not exchange students in South Korea, right? They're the same teachers, the same curriculum online. But now, after the four hours of class, you're in South Korea. And so you're going out, you're eating different food, you're working with different civic partners, and we have staff on the ground. We don't, the teachers are not on the ground, but we have staff on the ground that set up those relationships so that we're kind of bootstrapping you. Because if you just went to South Korea as part of a group of you know, English uh, speakers, as, as you mentioned, then you're just kind of hanging out, like that would, it would take you a long time to break in. And so we're kind of bootstrapping that by setting you up with all these relationships. And again, like giving you the chance to apply these concepts in real life situations across a range of cultures. And, and we're hoping that that kind of unique combination is really enabling. And we have, you know, the first cohort of Minerva students graduated last May, uh, which is, was a huge milestone for, like, imagine Absolutely. people who were there from the beginning who started the university from scratch, like the kind of hubris to, to believe that you can do that. <laughs> and, and then actually seeing those people, and I was there at the graduation, super, I mean, super emotional. And these students are now out in the world doing really, really cool stuff. Uh, and, and are going to be followed by, by new cohorts. So we're kind of, so that's like the Minerva schools, but then we realized that we want many more people to have access to this kind of pedagogy and this, this Sounds uh, amazing. technology. And so we're starting to work with a bunch of partners around the world. Uh, and we have universities, especially interested, I think in the first year experience, because most universities will not be super proud of their first year experience if they're honest with themselves. Yeah. I mean, they, at, yeah. at our school, the first year experience is basically taking classes you could have taken in high school. I mean, I didn't really have that first year experience cause I had you know whatever AP credit, but from everyone I've talked to, it's just taking the most generic courses that are all online for free have been taught a million times and are taught in not unique and interesting way at all. Right. So you're taking all these students who are like super excited, who are coming to, to university and are like just ready to learn and ready to party as well, I'm sure. But still, like they're definitely you know, hopefully ready to learn. And you put them in huge lecture halls and like in Toronto, I had a lot of multiple choice tests and, and this kind of stuff. And with our curriculum, you're able to really teach them skills that will kind of set them up for success no matter where they go. Uh, on the other hand, we're also working with corporate partners who want to do in-house training of their middle management. And the interesting thing turns out, a lot of the stuff that we teach our first years is exactly what you want to teach uh, middle management. Of course, the examples are going to be different. The classroom discussion is going to be hugely different because people are drawing on a whole different you know, range of experience. But the core skills and competencies are, are pretty much exactly what you need in this world. Uh, we're working with some like Berkeley Law has a really great partnership where they're training senior lawyers. You know, so of course, Berkeley Law is great at training lawyers, you know, the law and, and all of that stuff. And so you graduate, you go into a law firm 
and now like you're 10, 15 years into your career, maybe you're a partner or so maybe you're a partner, you're managing, you know, uh, you're helping manage this huge company or maybe you're general counsel at a big tech company. And, and so your job is just much more complex than, than just knowing the law. And, uh, and they're now offering some, some courses with us, um, our pedagogy, our platform, their teachers. And it's really amazing to see these people coming together and, and exchanging experiences and, and digging in. So we're working with a, a high school, Laurel Springs High School in California. Uh, so, you know, for me, it's also super fascinating to see how we're taking this thing that was like custom built for our own university uh, and, and now like applying it to all these different partner companies. Realizing it's useful for more than just a college student. For sure. I mean, I, I really think that from the way you outline the skills, I don't feel like the courses I've taken, just taking math, science, computer science courses have done much to bring about development in communication or, uh, you know, those different types of mental models, I guess you could call them the way you've broken down the different ways of constructing arguments and assessing information. I don't think I've one definitely zero, like explicit evaluation in those things, but very few projects or assignments or circumstances that would even bring about one, an awareness of them or two, any chance to develop them, even, even implicitly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I feel the exact same way. We go to the same school, so <laughs> we had similar I mean, experiences. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, mean, I think I, 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 lectures, yeah. homework, tests, I mean, and but, co coding projects, that's more or less been the extent of the things I've been asked to do. But what you're creating for these Minerva students is not only, you know, the educational piece. Like, I think that being in different communities where you're you're going out with a group of people that you know that are, are you know, 22,000 down to 180, like all these people are having really cool conversations, I'm sure. And they're going out into these seven different, completely different worlds, basically, and, and making change. Like, and at the same time, figuring out what they're passionate about. So by the end of it, they've, they've built for four years and they're ready to take on the world. I think, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't had it in my head like that beforehand. And it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's... it's yeah, there's, I mean, so there's, there's a, if anyone's interested, um, uh, there's a great book that we published a few years ago uh, that actually lays out in great detail. Um, I mean, it's a little bit out of date because we keep innovating, but it's, you know, it's kind of, it's like a handbook to how to build a university. Uh, and it goes into not just the pedagogy, which I was interested in, but it's like, how do we recruit? How do we provide psychological services, which are, you know, super important when you're putting people through this incredibly intense process? How do we uh, support our alumni to be the most effective that they can be? Uh, so the people who graduated in May, we basically said, we will support you you know, a lot of, because we're trying to do everything different from traditional universities. So traditional universities, you know, they, they have some career guidance services and then they send you a newsletter and they, and they ask you for money regularly. And maybe they have some like meetups or something. We're saying, you know, we think you're going to go out and do great things. And we commit ourselves to supporting you for your lifetime. That when you need uh, support, when you're doing something that needs um, amplification, right? If you need to be connected to the right people, we're there and we're following you along like because we we you know we were kind of bringing up this group of people that we hope that are going to do really great stuff and, and so we're trying to rethink like everything about the, the relationship between the students and and the university and how we're, we're kind of able to 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 kind of support them so 
anyways, that book is uh, it's called Building the Intentional University, which I really love because I feel like, I mean, universities are like, I've always loved universities. I'm not, you know, there's so much wonderful things about them, but so much of it is really historical, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this kind of uh, path dependency. Like, why do we do certain things in the way we do them? Well, kind you know, of built by say, accident almost. The SAT test is like, you know, for, for uh, military in the First World War or something when they needed to sort a lot of people very quickly. And like there's all of these things that are really fun to dig into. But like, again, if we started from scratch, how would we do it? And if we did it intentionally, if we put everything together for a reason, then what would it look like? And I think, you know, Minerva is one possible answer, but it's, it's not a bad one. That's incredible. I mean, it's such a rare opportunity to be able to start from scratch, have a budget, be informed by uh, the latest knowledge, be equipped with a team of engineers who can actually realize it, and then have designed a system that selects the best students to be able to participate in it. So it's a really powerful thing. And I'm really eager to see next year or two what Mm -hmm. some of that alumni stories are, because from everything you're saying about it, there's no reason those students shouldn't be going on to do great things plus you have the added advantage of having a cohort of students that were likely to be successful either like on their own so it's but taking them and amplifying them in that way and exposing them to each other uh is a huge yeah i mean if they're weighing going to stanford or doing minerva like they're obviously pretty high level thinkers beforehand that's what i touched on with like them all being together you know the the cohort piece of it's so so strong Absolutely. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because we really try hard. Um, we, you know, and even, even that's, uh, you know, so, so let's say you have 23,000 applicants. So first of all, you have to figure out how to get your word out there. Uh, a lot of people haven't heard about Minerva. And, and so we have, don't have a big marketing budget. So yeah. we have to be extremely thoughtful about how we reach the people that we want to reach in a global fashion. And then once you are lucky enough to get 23,000 applications, you have to figure out how do you not spend all of your money you know, evaluating those, but at the same time, getting to the people that you really want. And then once you get to those, you actually have to convince them because, you know, sometimes those are the people who also got offers from MIT and Stanford, but there are other times where those are the people who wouldn't have had a chance at Stanford and MIT because uh, maybe they weren't in qualify for aid, or maybe their um, profile didn't fit. Uh, and so we're, we are looking for slightly different things. We don't look at SATs at all. We built a lot of kind of custom computer systems and, and, and workflows, uh, both to be kind of economical, but also to really hone in on, on the skills that we think uh, or, or the characteristics of students that are likely to be very successful at Minerva and trying to correct as much as possible for a socioeconomic advantage, which is, you know, it's impossible to do it completely. Uh, but, but I think we're doing a much better job than a lot of the traditional universities. Um, and so like one thing that we're proud of, but it's also kind of one thing that's limiting our, our growth in terms of size. Um, you know, some of the big universities, you know, they talk about, um, being income blind and that anyone who's admitted, they can, they can attend. And if you look at the amount of the percentage of students, you know, who don't need scholarships, even though the tuition might be sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars a year, and it's you know extremely high, and so it seems kind of strange that only the rich people are are uh, smart. Uh, that's one theory of the world. And at uh, Minerva, you know, our tuition is fifteen thousand a year, and and we don't get any government funding at all, uh, and that's because we don't have a campus. We don't have you know we our administration is down to the bone and kind of start you know startup uh, style effective. And almost all of our money goes to paying really high quality faculty, which is how it should be. Um, 
And on the other hand, 85% of our students can't afford $15,000 a year. So we, we have work study programs for them. Uh, and then if that's not enough, we give them, them grants, right? Sure. And so that's expensive. And that means that it's hard to kind of, if we want to keep that profile uh, growing the enrollment many folds, which we, you know, would be great to just like take many more students, but that's going to be challenging. And that's also another one of the reasons why we're uh, working with all these different partners. And from a pedagogical perspective, that's incredibly interesting because it's, you know, I, I still think we do a completely different job than some of the top universities, but it's certainly easy to say like, look, those students would have been successful no matter what. And, you know, when we're working with students um, across a much broader range of institutions uh, and, and seeing how our system works there, I think that's, that's incredibly interesting. That's awesome. I know there's a, a million other things we could be getting to, like in the uh, pre-outline we sent you, and perhaps we could discuss after this, maybe doing some sort of part two on the completely different range of topics that uh, productivity, knowledge management, those kind of things. But I think that would just be a bit too much for, for one interview. So I think we'll kind of shift towards our potpourri, just open bag questions now. Um, got my nervous stuff. That's so, so cool. It's one of those things I kind of wish I knew more about it because it sounds like extremely advantageous for anyone who would do it. And yeah, I think I'll just, any high school seniors out there, I know I'd almost, I'd want to encourage them to consider that as an option because having experienced three years of college firsthand uh, in a STEM discipline, you know, which all the things the modern media wants to say, that's the way to do it. If you are going to still go to a traditional university is get the STEM education. And even there I can say, I don't really know the ways in which I've benefited from not just taking a MOOC for all the different technical topics and learning everything in a year instead of four. Uh, mm -hmm. what real development I've gotten out of it from the classroom perspective. I mean, the social environment, there's definitely the benefits to that, but that's a whole, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really kicking myself for not applying you know, three <laughs> years ago. We had a much better chance of getting in three years ago than we would now. That's, so. that, that's true. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. getting really hard. But uh, well, just one thing I want to mention is, uh, you know, because of the whole uh, Corona crisis, um, we've been thinking, you know, thinking a lot about how we can support universities who are now suddenly facing uh, new challenges. And we've we've done some some outreach and and been able to help a bunch of people in a very ad hoc fashion this semester, uh, who were you know caught completely unaware. Um, but we're now, um, you know, a lot of universities are thinking about the fall semester, and it seems like a lot of them might be going completely online, partially online. I mean, nobody quite knows. Uh, what's going on is that we're already working with a number of partners who are interested in like actually moving parts of their curriculum or to to the Minerva platform and you know and because there's some lead time they can actually do it in a much you know properly training faculty and stuff like that um, but you know if, if uh, we also have a really interesting um, offer um, thinking that you know a lot of U.S. universities are very dependent on international students for their uh, budgets and uh, there's it's very um, uncertain times for international students. I mean, Chinese students as you know, the most extreme example, which are um, very important for a lot of US campuses, but even even other, they don't know if they should accept their uh, their offers of admission uh, or, or and so on. Uh, and, and what we're offering them is that if you are accepted at a top US university, uh, we will accept you as a visiting Minerva scholar for one year. Uh, so you would be actually, actually taking the same courses that our first years would be taking, would taught by Minerva professors who are you know top notch. So this would not be taking some kind of Zoom class by someone who's never taught online before. This would be exactly the same education that Minerva students are, are getting for one year, and 
uh, we're working with different universities in the U.S. to be able to give full transfer credit. And so, in a way, it's helping the students because they would be able to like not waste a year, but instead like get top quality education and then mm-hmm. move straight into the second year. And it's helping the U.S. institutions because they would be able to um, kind of offer something very concrete to people who are and actually keep those enrollment numbers. Yeah, give uh, them a buffer so that they can still exactly. come. I can't imagine though uh, how the students are gonna. That's what I was going to say. Adapt to. Yeah. They're going to have the, the best instruction in the world for a year and then just be dropped in Calc 2, taught on Zoom, and say, what the heck is this? I want to go back. Uh, this doesn't even count as the same thing. <laughs> but that's an incredible offer for those students, and that's great that y'all are using the fact that you've kind of designed yourself around the challenges the world is facing. I mean, not even with them in mind necessarily, but your online always educations. Uh, very, you're well equipped for it. I mean, the University of Alabama, where Kyle and I goes to fantastic school, but they had, I mean, they did not anticipate this until like the last possible minute and took an extra week of spring break. And the classes have really just been, like you said, Zoom, Zoom and Blackboard. And I haven't even been to a single Zoom lecture. So it's kind of been, it's been interesting to say the least. Uh, so y'all are in a good position and it's great that y'all are helping out. Uh, so let's get into kind of our general grab bag questions. The first one I have here is a little back to some of the topics from the beginning of this conversation about your travel and your different experiences. And maybe uh, you talked about that Kazakh friend. Did you do your, let's talk about that bike ride you did for a second, because that's awesome. Uh, you did a cross continent, I don't even know what to call it, bike ride from China to Iran or Iran. Mm-hmm. Can yeah. you tell us about that journey and what inspired it and kind of? yeah. So, more about it. So, so this was um, the first time I went to China, uh, and I I've always loved biking, uh, and I've done some some bike trips before, multi day bike bike trips. Um, and I was in, I was, so I was nine months in Wuhan teaching English, learning Chinese, and I traveled a bit around China. But I felt like I was always taking the train to another big city, and they all kind of look similar. Um, and I really want to see more of the countryside and just different landscapes and stuff. But I didn't even know how to go there. Like, you know, just take the bus to some tiny little village and you walk around, look at lots of people and then you take the bus back. And you, like, it was, I mean, I might've been complicating it for too much for myself, but I just like didn't quite know how to do it. And, uh, I had this idea of doing like a big overland bike trip and met this, uh, awesome New Zealand guy who was teaching there. He was uh, doing med school and there was like a natural break where they were able to take a year off for med school. So he was there teaching as well. He was much more athletic than me. He'd done these kind of adventure races and stuff. And so initially we said, Hey, you know, let's, let's get some bikes and let's go for a month bike ride. And we kind of looked at the map and we had like this, um, goal in mind, which was uh, Rumqi, which is in the west of, of China, uh, where the, the Uyghurs uh, live. So it's like north of Tibet, basically. All of China, you can split it in like four quadrants. And in the east is like where 95% of the people live. Uh, and then you have the, the southwest is Tibet. And the northwest is Xinjiang. It's just a gigantic desert. Muslims, uh, Uyghurs, uh, very simplified. Anyway. And we had no idea what to expect at all. Uh, we, I hadn't been on a bike for like a year before because I didn't have a bike in China. Even finding a good bike uh, was not trivial. This was way before, uh, I mean, they didn't have yellow pages, right? They just had like one street uh, in the whole city where all the bike stores were. And so we had to ask around like, where was that street? And, I, 
anyway, we managed to get this stuff together. We couldn't get uh, saddlebags for the bikes, uh, but they have these cobblers on the street that like fixes your shoes and stuff. So we bought some elementary school uh, backpacks and we had a cobbler kind of just sew them together in the back so we could put them over. Um, very amateurish, um, but we kind of said that. And the, the thing we had was time and a little bit of money. I mean, I had money for my summer job in Norway before I left. And so, you know, it's not a lot, but it's something that later in life, when you have family and a, a job and you're like, wow, back then, like just take off for a year. That was pretty valuable. And I'm so glad I did it back then. Uh, but we started off, we biked for, and, and the first week of biking, enough interesting stuff happened that if I had stopped after a week, I would still be telling the story today. Like we just met so many interesting people. And of course, me being able to speak Chinese fluently, uh, people just generally being super interested, super friendly and curious. You know, we would just camp. We had a, a tent, we'd camp in uh, fields. And, and sometimes in the morning, farmers would like, you know, send their kid out with an apple for us. Or, you know, like we would be eating noodles in a cafe and we'd have 40 people watching us. And they would like take us to the one English teacher in town to check if she could really speak English because they'd never seen her speak English <laughs> with anyone else, right? Like it was just, it was just amazing. <laughs> And, and so after that first week, we were, uh, so we had, you know, we, no digital connection other than every week we'd go to an internet cafe, we'd stay for a night in a hotel and go to an internet cafe. And we were like, what if we kept going? What would that look like? Because I don't, I don't have any plans. I mean, I had some plans, but it wasn't crucial. So we go to this, and, and my friend had this pocket almanac, and there was a world map there that, that could fit in the palm of my hand. And so we're kind of looking, like, because we were, the thing, the idea was that we were going along the old silk route, which started in Xi'an, which was the ancient capital. And there was a few different ones, but, um, but we're like, what if we went to Rome in Italy? <laughs> Why not, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how far is that? And we're kind of using our thumb, and we're like, okay, so that's, so going to Xinjiang, that's about, 3,000 kilometers, that's one thumb. So let's see, okay, two, three more thumbs, you know, like, let's see, what's that? A very bulk park. And we go to, to the internet cafe, and back then it was the Lonely Planet Thorn Tree. That was like the one place where you could meet crazy travelers who had gone to all kinds of weird countries and they would leave. And so we're like, well, what countries are even between here and Italy? And it turns out we have to go to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan. And so you're Googling like biking in Turkmenistan <laughs> and you know, you find people who've actually done it and they'll be like, okay, this is how you get the visa. And it turns out that was really hard and uh, all of these things. And so we just, you know, we just kind of kept going. Uh, it took us uh, a week to get the visa to Kazakhstan from, from China. And then we crossed the border in Kazakhstan. We didn't have a map. So we asked the guy at the border, what's the direction to the capital? And he just pointed and we just kind of, went in that direction for a while until we found the capital. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you know, I could, I could tell stories for hours, but uh, and then like we spent about four months until we reached the other side of Iran, closer to Turkey. I, I'd been kind of sick for about a month with something weird in my stomach and I thought it would get better, but it never did. And so I said, um, and I was kind of pretty exhausted by that time. So I decided to break off the trip and my friend, he continued all the way to Rome. And so I went back to, I went down to Italy to meet him there uh, when he, when he kind of reached a goal. So he, he oh. managed to complete his goal. But I mean, he was always the, you know, for me, this was just more of a adventure. Like I want to see all of these amazing things and like be able to say, look on the map, like I biked here. I know what it looks like. It's not just like this abstract thing uh, for my friend, you know, he was always more 
athletically driven. And you know, he's the kind of guy who would walk to the North Pole just to be able to say he did it. So uh, for him, it was really a big, big thing to complete it. Well, I think that we could probably do a whole part three on uh, the bike ride, but we'll get to a couple more questions. Um, who are some of your favorite thought leaders right now? Well, a thought leader is a, it's a loaded word. Um, uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> at Minerva, we're thinking about how we can become thought leaders in education. Um, maybe getting on more podcasts is, uh, is one strategy. But um, I would say I'm, I'm continuously kind of amazed at how much value is on Twitter. And it's difficult because Twitter is also this horrible, you know, distraction. And, and it's like, you really need to learn how to use it effectively. And, and I don't think I'm very good at it. So, you know, but you can't just turn it off. I mean, you couldn't, but it would be a shame because I've learned an incredible amount. And so I think that's something I'm struggling with a bit, but, uh, and there's like people I can name, um, like I'm, I'm, you know, Michael Nielsen and Andy Matuszak, like the stuff they're doing around education in terms of spaced repetition, uh, which sounds like one word, but it's actually like this whole field that I feel is, is kind of burgeoning right now and note taking and stuff. Uh, but there's like even people I follow that don't even have their real name on Twitter. And yet they're like more insightful than a lot of people I could cite in academia. Uh, I also w- wish a lot of the traditional academia, especially my field of learning science would be much more open to these kind of medium because they're a lot of this, especially the senior people, they're basically still writing journal articles and books. And, you know, there's a lot of deep thought and insight there, but it's so slow. Like the, the, this feedback cycles are so slow. And oftentimes because what goes into a, a journal article is so limited. Uh, and a lot of the work, the most exciting work that's getting done is design-based research where you're saying, well, you know, it's not about testing a hypothesis of A versus B. It's like what I did in my PhD thesis. Like, what would it look like to scale collaborative pedagogy to a massive context, right? That's that's not a, a hypothesis question. That's a design question. And the answer to that question is very rich and many faceted and might consist of, of like software and uh, sketches and all kinds of qualitative stuff. And sadly, most of that stuff gets left by the wayside. I saw that myself in my PhD lab where we would do these incredibly rich designs for, for uh, high school science classes. You know, we have hundreds of pages of sketches and stuff like that. And if you're an architect and you're famous, you could publish that as a book. Like people buy these books, you know. And, and for us, we would write up like a 15-page thesis that would uh, get published and give you credit but really wouldn't have any of that richness. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a... Um, weird way of answering but uh yeah <laughs> i don't know i feel like i feel like it's not so much the people as like the communities and and to me rome has been really amazing in the way it's it's functioned as this kind of gravitational pull on a lot of people many of whom aren't even using rome themselves but just feel like this is a group of people uh interested in this and, and are kind of really building on each other in a really productive way which mirrors a little bit what i felt uh with the open educational resources and the open education blogosphere you know 12 years ago which just and it, back then the interesting thing was a lot of the people active they were not actually professors of education they tended to work in uh, like uh, university centers for teaching and learning or it departments where they didn't have the same requirements to publish 
And so they needed to come up with all kinds of solutions for mm-hmm. the local community, but those solutions didn't have to be unique. They had to be appropriate for your community. And so you don't need to get credit for that being, you know, you being the only one in the world doing it. In fact, if you share that with someone, they improve it. And now you can use their improvement. Like you're serving your local population better. And so those people were much more likely to put out open source code or just reflections, ideas, sketches uh, that people were building on, like on a daily basis. Uh, whereas the professors of education who really are supposed to, you know, paid by taxpayer money to do this kind of stuff uh, would be so wor- maybe worried about people, you know, not getting enough credit and stuff. And this is not them being selfish. This is, I mean, I've been an academic and it's an incredibly stressful environment where you're just constantly being told that you're not good enough and you're not publishing enough and and stuff like that. So it's it's not their fault. But, and so anyway, I'm seeing a little bit of the same energy in in the kind of extended uh, note-taking community where people are just, you know, on Slack, on Twitter, uh, putting out open source hacks and building on each other's ideas and, and you know, iterating on what does evergreen nodes mean? What does settle cost mean? How do you implement it? And, and I find that that kind of environment is really, really exciting to be part of. I mean, I've really enjoyed following along and trying my hand at contributing just in the little ways. Uh, so the last question we have for you uh, is now with the coronavirus and quarantine and different things getting canceled and people having plans kind of falling through, it's kind of presented a golden opportunity for self-education uh, with more people being stuck at home, having free time, having sitting at home with the computer kind of. So with someone who is kind of an expert or very, very educator, spend a lot of time in that space, where would you recommend people go as the best resource online for self-education? I know the answer to that might be dramatically different if it's just you want to learn art history versus you want to become a software developer in three months. Uh, so you can kind of maybe take a couple of angles there, but with your expertise in that area, what do you think the best places online for either cheap, free or affordable self-education during these next couple of months would be? So first of all, whether you have more time or less right now, depends on whether you have kids or not. That's uh, <laughs> you, there's a lot of parents out there who are not in the position you just exp- that's true. Uh, but certainly for, for younger people, uh, it's a great uh, opportunity. It could be. Um, so I, I have you know, a bunch of, of notes in Rome that I'm kind of building on, like kind of open questions. And one of them is this idea that, which I hear a lot of people talking, you know, that people who, who I have a high confidence level towards saying that learning should be directed towards doing because uh, A, that's a good way of learning. B, that's a good way of kind of making sure that the, the choices you make in what you learn or what resources you use are, are, are kind of effective and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think certainly for, I mean, learning computer science or something like that, it's, it's fairly obvious that, um, you know, building projects and stuff like that. And also making sure that you build projects that challenge yourself because, uh, you know, you could build a lot of CRUD apps in React. And if you've never used React before, that's probably really useful. But if you have, like, maybe, you know, try building a completely different thing or, like, learning a different programming language, I think can be tremendously useful. I, I spent a lot of time... Uh, I mean, I, I don't have any formal computer science background. I spent a lot... like I, And I basically, for 20 years of my life, I was just, like, Python and Ruby... That was, you know, that was all I needed. I wrote a bunch of scripts for myself, some data analysis, some personal productivity, and just messing around. And that was cool, but I, I didn't wasn't making any progress. I wasn't learning anything. And then I 
partially through like Hacker News posting a lot of cool articles. And I started getting into Lisp and like the whole history of Lisp and then Clojure, which has like a really rich ecosystem of That's ideas. That's what Connor actually recommended I learned when I talked to him once was Clojure. Yeah, he's, he's a big Clojure fan. Uh, I'm not sure. Like I didn't, I don't like Java so much. That's the only problem with Clojure. But anyway, uh, but then Clojure was like a gateway drug to Haskell. And <laughs> gateway Haskell drug. <laughs> is, oh yeah, it's a good, Haskell is really uh, mind-blowing. It is like mind altering. Uh, also, Haskell has the most intellectual, for good, for better or worse, uh, community you'll ever find. Like you'll be on the Haskell Reddit, and they're posting PhD theses just as much as they're posting blog posts. And a lot of the blog posts could have been PhD theses, <laughs> you know. But they they have this, and so like I I spend a ton of time on Haskell. I never wrote anything close to useful. But I learned more about computer science and type theory and, and, and program, like just all these deep concepts than ever before. Then I went and I did my PhD thesis in Elixir, which is built on Erlang. And Erlang is, is in, so I really like these functional languages, but you know, the, they have very different approaches. Haskell is really big on the type theory, which Clojure doesn't have at all. Clojure is like the Lisp and the macros and, and all that stuff. And uh, Elixir is this agent-based uh, It's a JavaScript system. framework, right? No, no, it's Erlang. Oh. So that's different from like Elixir JS. That's yes. that's like what Adam, Elixir like is, the text editor Adam's built on, and some other little mini apps. But this is something else, uh, I guess. Okay. Yeah, Elixir is is uh, actually the guy. One of the main contributors to Ruby on Rails was so frustrated because Ruby on Rails, because Ruby is kind of single threaded and it doesn't scale very well, and it does particularly badly with WebSockets because. Um, because you need to maintain all these open connections and that's becoming more and more common with these real-time apps. And so he went into Erlang, which is this really old thing that was developed by Ericsson to run like phone switches. I think still 95% of all the phone switches in the world run on Erlang. So it's, you know, if you build a, a programming language for uh, phone switches, you want something that is never down <laughs> and you need to be able to even upgrade it in place and you need to just have like incredible scalability. That's interesting, upgrading it in place. Yeah, that's... yeah. And, okay. and so, but the problem was that the, the syntax was kind of weird. And so they, they kind of just built a new syntax on top of it, uh, a bit like Clojure on Java, I guess. And it's, it's a really, really fun, again, community. So much you can learn from it. And then you can go into like, you know, the guy who, who wrote React, he's now working on Reason, which is a new syntax for OCaml. So like there's just these, these, these languages out there that have such a deep history and, and exposure. I think I'm taking to programming languages in the fall. If, which will be cool. Yeah, that class yeah, you build build your own. That, interesting. That's, yeah, that's really cool. I like that. I haven't done much in that, like parsers and stuff. I think that'd be really useful too. Because then, even if you go back to JavaScript or back to whatever, you know, you'll be able to. I mean, I use these concepts daily using uh, in JavaScript. So, um, so anyway, so my point was like for programming languages and a lot of other stuff like that. I think building things uh, and being very thoughtful about the kind of stuff you build. It is is really good, but then I'm like, well, I also am really interested in philosophy. I'm actually listening to this amazing podcast series now on like ancient philosophy, and that's like I think I feel like that's valuable, right? Like I feel like to maybe to be a better human, maybe to understand things. Like I don't know, but what does it mean to to do, right? Like is doing. Do I need to blog about it? Like I can blog about it, but now like you know, does it mean just taking really deep notes and like thinking about how this affects my life. Like settle like casting on whatever philosophy right. podcast mm -hmm. or. Yeah. So I haven't quite, so I feel like there's like 
So you have to yeah. produce your own works of philosophy. <laughs> you have to become an right, amateur. Right, exactly. I, I feel like that's, so that's why it's an open question. I'm kind of like, you know, keep it there and I'll keep reflecting on it. Um, but uh, but I, th I think like, I mean, so so going back to my, my PhD system, it because it's really interesting, I still have those notes today. In fact, I'm, I put most of them on my, on my public roam if anyone else wants to look at them. And so going back and thinking about how much time I spent reading those articles and writing those notes, and how useful those notes are, are, are to me today. And what I realized is that back then I spent way too much on each article in isolation. And maybe this was a little bit of like PhD, you know, inferiority complex. Like I need, here's this amazing thing and I need to understand it in depth. Like that is my goal as a disciple. Uh, and I spent way too little time connecting across and being asking questions and saying like, okay, so I read these 10 articles, like, how are they different? How are they similar? What does this mean? How would I disprove this theory? What are their claims even? And specifically, not just like a summary of what they say, but what are their specific claims? How do they prove them? Uh, and so I think that kind of reading, whether it's like the book, uh, How to Read Books, which was written like 50 years ago, mm. or, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, the How to Take Smart Notes, yeah, or it's reading like Andy Matushak, like, and really thinking about challenge, you know, when you listen to something, challenge it and connect it, and make it your own. I think that's, whether well, I think that's as a blog post or not, I think that, that's really important. I think that's where a lot of the appeal in that kind of vacuum around Rome and these other systems has come from, is people recognizing that maybe it's just a tendency, right? I mean, humans tend to take very often the path of least resistance, and it's the tendency to just read and not do the work of synthesis, which is where like the higher level value comes out of reading and writing, uh, and people realizing, and that's kind of also the same maybe underlying cause of this like current drive towards productivity is that our natural impulses lead us to do very unproductive things and take on very unproductive habits. But what we've learned from literature and just watching other people be uh, very prolific makes us want to force ourselves to do those things. And then these tools that come along with the promise of making you closer to that ideal of being a more active consumer of information and more of a producer based on the information you consume and working with it yourself. Uh, that's where I think the interest for a lot of these tools comes around from. But I think uh, that whole conversation, which was half of what we had planned for this conversation initially, <laughs> we barely even got into. So maybe we could talk about part two. But I think this was a fantastic interview going through, I mean, the first 10 minutes, just or first however long it was on language learning was super interesting and the travel and the journey through academia and how that led to kind of a, un, not an underground, but a firsthand perspective on the history of open education. Because uh, I mean, Kyle and I, in our generation, it's something we take for granted. By the time we are reaching that age of taking some autonomy and authority of our own learning, edX was big, edX was established, MIT OpenCourseWare wasn't just YouTube, PDS, right. YouTube at <laughs> YouTube University, Wikipedia, all these things were there and realized. So it was cool to have that firsthand. No, people are actually in universities building this and inventing it. Uh, so that was awesome. Uh, and um, and watching you actualize, uh, you know, from your PhD and your um, undergrad, everything kind of built toward Minerva. So it, it was interesting to hear you, uh, you know, draw that line and keep that thread through through all those years. But yeah, uh, thank you so much for coming on. That was great. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Well, that wraps up our interview with Steon Hacklove. I thought it was a great conversation. Lewis, what'd you think? I really enjoyed it. I'm very glad we brought him on. We only got to about half the things we meant to get to, which is probably a good sign that we are having an interesting conversation in the first place. 
Hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support the show, which we hope you want to do if you've made it two hours into this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. Follow us on social media for updates there. And please share the show with a friend. Help us get more listeners. Thank you so much. And we'll see you in the next episode in a few days. Thanks, y'all.